what, girl? If you got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 7. Got a few more coming up there, I think. Some of your parents look tired. Was there something that went on last night that I didn't know about? If you would please stand to honor the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 7, we'll pick it up in verse 1. John says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day and for all that you've given us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it shows us today that those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his life, his death, his resurrection, that, Father, we're sealed. And that seal means that we will persevere. That seal means that you will carry us through until that great day where we stand in front of your throne and we worship you forever. And on that day, we won't worship you or we we won't worship saying how wonderful we are, but instead we will worship and say how wonderful you are for your plan of salvation, for you enacting the plan of salvation, for you fulfilling the plan of salvation. So I pray today that if somebody doesn't know you in this room, that they would trust in you. Uh, that, Father, for us as believers, 
that this text would be such an encouraging word to us today that no matter what we go through, that you've sealed us and that you'll carry us. And it's in your name we pray, amen. All right, you guys can be seated. So we, we just um, sang that song, King of My Heart, and, it, and it's, it's, a, it's a great song and it's, it's really upbeat and everybody likes it. But, but what a lot of people I don't think understand is that, that the song was written in a moment of intense grief for its writer, Sarah McMillan. Uh, I was listening to her talk about this just recently and she wrote the song after her parents who had been married for 39 years decided they didn't wanna be married anymore. And so she said this thing that was in her life that was stable, that it was this foundation, that it was rock, that it was the, the one thing that she had really always counted on outside of the Lord was all of a sudden gone. And so in her despair and in her grief, God in his grace led her to write this song as a reminder that he is the king of her heart, that he is always holding on to her, that he will never let her down. Now listen, I, I think if, if we were honest in here, you would admit to me, maybe privately, but you would, that there are times in your life that you've struggled to believe that God is good, that you've struggled to believe that he really is holding on to you, uh, that, that he really will never let you down. I mean, I know I've asked those questions in my own life, going through the pain and difficulty of broken homes as a kid, the, the stress and the strain that comes with relationships with siblings and parents over those things, uh, two special needs diagnoses in the last six years, my own struggle with depression at times. I, I have those moments where, to be perfectly honest, I go, God, are you good? God, have you really um, held on to me? Because I'll admit, there are days I feel let down a whole lot. And honestly, I think there's more days I feel let down than I do feel lifted up. And again, as I said, I'd be willing to bet that many of you have said similar, similar things at times in your life as you faced your own personal struggles and your own personal trials. I've told you this for six years, I'll keep telling you this. The Bible never tells us that God's children will be insulated against or protected from the devastating consequences of physical harm or persecution or natural calamities or just living in a fallen and broken world. So that means when you experience job problems or, or you get a medical diagnosis that you weren't expecting or maybe your marriage falls on hard times or maybe you have that child that is a, a wayward child that strayed after you did everything right, to start thinking that God has let you down is to misunderstand what he does and doesn't promise us in the scriptures. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good and for those who are called according to his purpose. Now notice that verse doesn't say for those who are called according to his purpose is that they'll have a life of ease and comfort. It doesn't say that, does it? It says that no matter what happens, no matter what comes into our life, that if you're a believer, there's a bigger reason and purpose behind the things that happen to you. That God is bigger than your circumstances and that he's taking all the things good and bad in your life and he's turning them all for your good and for his glory. 
And this is why Revelation chapter 7 and even parts of chapter 14 are good news for you as a believer in this room this morning, right? Because it's talking about Christians being sealed by God and this sealing is in protection from the devil or from the attacks of non-Christians in this world. This sealing means something far greater for us. So, so look with me if you will. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. All right, John says, after this, okay, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. Okay, so real quick, um, we're going through the, the, the seven seal judgments. The best way to look at the seven seal judgments, it's like a 30,000 foot view of what's happening uh, towards the end of all things. The first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We said they all go together. Those four horsemen are not something way, way out in the future. Those four horsemen are roaming the earth right now, seeking to cause problems. The first one is a false Christ. It deceives. The second one is, uh, is the rider that takes away peace from the world. So he does that by causing us to be uh, uh, at, at, at unease in our own hearts, and he does that by uh, physical warfare, literal violence. The third one is famine, right? That that comes as a result of, of wars and the consequences of wars and the consequences of a broken world. And then the fourth one is death, that death is the result of all these things. All that's happening on the earth right now, right? Then the fifth seal was we see those that have been slain for their faith that have died and they were martyred and that they are now in heaven, they're under the altar, they're being protected by Jesus, they're resting, awaiting the day that he comes back. The sixth seal shows us a big picture view of what happens to non-believers when Jesus comes back. That instead of being a great day of rejoicing and worshiping the lamb, it turns into this day of violence and calamity as they're asking for rocks and heels to fall on them to shield them from what happens when Jesus comes back. And right here in chapter 7, we're not seeing something that's chronological, all right? So I titled this sermon, and, and there was a miscommunication between Mary and me. I have bad handwriting, so that's on me. The sermon is called Parenthetical Interlude, right? It's a parenthesis, because chapter 7 is a parenthesis in which John explains in more detail and provides more background to better understand the vision of chapter six. So remember, when it says after this, we're, 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 we're wired to think chronologically. That's not what's happening here, it's just the next vision. And so this is what happened back in chapter six. And so he begins by saying after this, right? It doesn't mean that it's chronological, that, that the vision appeared after the last vision in chapter six. It's the next vision. And it makes sense when you see that at the end of chapter six, you see through Figurative language, what do we see? The destruction of the earth, trees, and sea. But look what happens at the opening of chapter 7. He tells us that this angel's holding back judgment on the earth, the sea, and the trees. So it seems best to see chapter 7 as descriptive of what, ha what occurred prior to the events of chapter 6, not after. So, so what we're going to read here in the next few weeks are the bowl and trumpet judgments that are taking place on the earth throughout the past, present, future, all right? Sam Storms puts it this way. This book does not merely tell us what will happen in the future leading up to the second coming of Christ. 
It tells us what has happened in the past 19 centuries of the history of the church. It tells us what is happening right now in our lives, in our own day. And it also tells us what will happen in the days and years ahead before Jesus returns. So chapter 7 is going to show us how Christians survive and persevere through all these judgments. So chapter 7, this, this vision we see, this is happening right here, right now. The first part of this is, okay? So John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Remember, the number four in the Bible describes the whole earth. So you've got angels standing at every portion of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. These four winds must be held back or prevented from harming the earth. They're probably evil agents who God is using to bring judgment against the world. That's what the winds are. Notice in verse 2, you see what is known as the divine passive. These agents have been given the power to harm the earth. So when we see or read the divine passive in the Bible, it's a way to state that God has ultimate control over something, that he's allowing it, that he's doing it, while at the same time distancing God from it. So in other words, none of the harmful things that happen surprise God. He's not up in heaven going, oh, oh my me, didn't see that happen, right? It didn't. Satan hasn't tricked God. The world's not out of control. He's in control of everything that happens. Some things happen because he's given an ability to an agent to enact that, or he's appointed an agent to accomplish his purpose. But although these things happen, God's protecting his people. So while these angels are holding back these judgments from the world, another angel shows up, calls to the four, and says, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we've sealed God's servants on their foreheads. Now listen, the seal is not to protect God's people from physical harm. It's not, right? It doesn't protect us from harm that comes as a result of the judgments that are on the earth now. So I keep reminding you this, that in, John, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, John says that he's our brother, he's our partner in the tribulation. Jesus told the church in Smyrna to be faithful unto death. Jesus even said, surprise, some of you are going to go to jail. You're going to die there. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, shows us all the people who've been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Folks, martyrdom still happens. You know that, right? From October of 2019 to September of 2020, an average of 13 people a day were killed for their faith around the world. And don't think that number's low. That's not counting the countries like North Korea that we can't get into to even know how many Christians they're killing every day. Martyrdom still occurs. It's occurring every day at an unbelievable rate. So what the New Testament teaches, from my experience personally as an individual sufferer and as a pastor who's walked through suffering with many people, the people of God are not protected from physical suffering at the hands of unbelievers or from living in a fallen world. We're not. And yes, okay, before you get all you know, upset, email me and go, well, what about this or that? Okay, yes, there are times 
that God providentially and mercifully protects his people. We all have stories like that, right? Driving the car, we have a wreck. If it had just been a little bit to the right or a little bit more to the left, we could have been dead. Yes, God looked out for you. Yes, you have stories of healing where God healed or he stepped in or, or he, he came there at the last minute or whatever it was, okay? Those things happen, but there's no guarantee that he'll always do those things. So what's happening here in chapter seven is we are being sealed from the pains of judgment. So, so God seals his people and he ensures our preservation. So listen to me, the minute you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible is clear that you're given a seal. What is that seal? Anybody wanna take a guess? I mean, you can call on this one, I'll let you. It's the Holy Spirit. Jay read this to open the service. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we inquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit seals us in the sense that he keeps convincing us that God is trustworthy. He keeps compelling us over and over again to keep trusting in God, to keep leaning on God. He makes sure that we will always have compelling evidence to believe exactly what God says. So that's why you can see people who go through unspeakable tragedy after tragedy, and for some reason the morons keep following Jesus, right? It's because the Holy Spirit has sealed them and has given them compelling enough evidence to continue to follow him, to not give up. He's convinced them that, listen, it might be hard. You might bleed, but the reward is totally worth it, so keep following Jesus. That's what the seal means. So look at me. This should be a comfort to you that no matter how hard life gets, that if you're in Christ and you've been sealed, you will not suffer the smallest bit more than God allows. That's good news. You can be confident that if God is in control, then your suffering's not meaningless, and that whatever you're in right now, it's doing something. It's producing something in you, that God is using it for your good and for his glory that God will never let you go, as we just sang about. That if you've trusted in Jesus, God has sealed you and you will persevere. Now you may be limping when you get to heaven, right? You may look like Rocky after he's fought Apollo. You may be all busted up, but you're gonna make it. And it's not to say that you won't struggle to believe at times that God is good or that you won't be tempted to give up, but when it happens, you cling to his word and what he's promised you. So in other words, you should be highlighting these verses right here about being sealed, right? That you're sealed, that you're cared for. The seal indicates that we're God's and it indicates that he will keep us, that he will hold us fast no matter what we walk through. That's wonderful news to me. And see, there's also a counterfeit seal. Did you know that? Like Satan is the master of counterfeit. Like he loves to go, hey, what's God doing? Maybe I can copy that. Maybe I can rip that off. And so Satan loves to sit back. And so one of the things Satan does is he goes, hey, look at the Trinity. You got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Hey, I'm gonna make my own Trinity. 
That's what I'm going to do. And so in the book of Revelation, we see Satan's trinity, don't we? You have Satan, you have the beast, and you have the false prophet. It's his way of copying what God's doing. So if God has a seal and it's the Holy Spirit, what's Satan's seal? The mark of the beast. We'll read about that later, right? The mark of the beast, it's not a vaccine, right? It's not a, it's not a, it's not a microchip in your hand. It's not a tattoo on your forehead with a barcode that you got to scan to buy food and stuff like that. It's not what it is, right? The mark of the beast is the opposite of this seal. The mark of the beast means that instead of belonging to Jesus, you belong to the world. That your thoughts and your actions are consistent with worldly thinking, that they belong to Satan. They don't belong to the Lord, right? So God's seal, the Holy Spirit's not visible, right? I can't physically see the Holy Spirit, just like the mark of the beast won't be visible. And see, listen, the fact that the mark is on the forehead, you know what the forehead symbolizes? It symbolizes your ideological commitment. That's why Paul tells you in Colossians 3, 2 through 3, what's he say? Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So in other words, to be sealed by the Holy Spirit is mean that our eyes and our minds are fixed on Jesus. Doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that your eyes are facing Jesus. It means that there's evidence in your life that you're moving in that direction, that if you've, been, um, if you've trusted in Christ, you're sealed. And in other words, your life shows it. But if you've taken the other mark, you have a different seal and your life shows it that you're after the things of the world, not the things of God. So tired, weary Christian, this text is very good news for you. If you're in Christ, he sealed you. He's not forgotten you, and he will preserve you through the difficulties of your life, all right? So hold on to that, that's good news. Look at verse four though. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So you have 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Reuben, from the tribe of Gad, from the tribe of Asher, from the tribe of Naphtali, from the tribe of Manasseh, from the tribe of Simeon, from the tribe of Levi, from the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Zebulun, from the tribe of Joseph, from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. So now John hears the number of those who are sealed and it's 144,000 and he hears 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Now, there are 20 different variations of the 12 tribes listed like this in the Old Testament. And this one right here doesn't match a single one of them. It, it doesn't. And so it, it kind of doesn't make sense. And a lot of scholars kind of scratch their heads about it. Like Judah's listed four. First, Judah was the fourthborn. Now we know why he was first is because ultimately Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. So we get that part. Dan and Ephraim are omitted, most likely for their idolatry back in the Old Testament. And there's a number of other things that we can look at, like why are some of Jacob's concubine sons in there and not the, 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 the sons of his, his, da, of his, uh, his wives. Uh, there's a lot of different things, but listen, they're unimportant because most scholars conclude that we'll never know why the tribes are listed in this way. So, right? so let's let the main things be the plain things and the plain things be the main things. Let's not get hung up on all the crazy stuff that you could do, right? Like with the Bible code, I'm gonna punch the numbers in and figure it out. No, you're not. All right? Now, the way many of you have been taught is this, 
is that these 144,000 are a Jewish remnant saved after the rapture of the church, right? And so they're saved so that they can be uh, evangelists to those that are left on the earth, right? Because all of us good Christians got vacuumed out of here and there's nobody else to tell people about Jesus. But I don't think that's what's happening here. Others get hung up and say, this is the exact number of those who are saved. So Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that this number was reached in 1935, that they already hit the 144,000, that it's over. And the reason they keep evangelizing is, is they want to be a part of the great multitude. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. But I don't think that's what's happening here either. So I'm going to give you a better interpretation of this. All right, here you go. The 12 set to 12,000 point to a full and complete number. So this very round, very perfect number is symbolic. And what it tells us is that God saves a vast multitude of people without distinction. That's what it means, right? We use the tribes of Israel to indicate the true Israel. The true Israel is the church, right? And at this point, a lot of people be like, oh, here we go, Byron, with that replacement theology. No, this is not replacement theology. I never said a Jew was being replaced with anything. All the promises in the Old Testament that God gave to the Jewish people will be fulfilled. The problem we make is that we think it was an actual physical place instead of understanding that all those promises were pointing to Jesus and pointing to heaven. So all people, whether Jews or Gentiles who've trusted in Jesus Christ are now part of the true Israel, the church. And that's why this is here, all right? So by sealing this large number on the earth, he ensures their perseverance. So what we see is the whole church universal here on the earth. Now, the one thing we do know is that the tribes are presented in a, in a, in a manner similar to the militaristic arrangement of Israel's camp that we read about in the book of Numbers. And the list follows the exodus from Egypt as God's people are about to make their way towards the promised land. And what do they do in the promised land? They conquer it. They take the promised land. So here in Revelation, the church, us, is being pictured as a military battalion as we make our way towards our promised land, heaven. We've been sealed by our commander, Jesus. And although some of us are going to die before the commander returns, he will not lose a single one of us. He won't. He won't leave a man behind. And that's great news because, listen, if you feel insignificant, if you're a believer, you are among the ranks of the 144,000. So are you living your life like one who belongs to this company of believers? See, if you're part of the 144,000, meaning you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're sealed, then stop thinking your life is insignificant because it's not. You have meaning and purpose. So you may be a stay-at-home mom and you may be going, man, nobody sees what I do all day long. These kids are wearing me out. It's a terrible job. I've seen it. I don't want it. It's awful. I don't get enough credit for what I do. But you know what? If you're part of the 144,000, then you're making a kingdom impact as you raise those babies to know and love Jesus, as you bring them to church, right? Maybe you're coming without your husband. Keep doing it. You're making a kingdom impact. Maybe you sit at a desk all day and you're like, man, I'm not doing anything but pushing papers. How am I making a kingdom impact? Well, if you're part of the 144,000, your life has meaning, right? If you're a school teacher, if you're a coach, right? If you work at the hospital, whatever it is you do, if you find yourself among these ranks, then your life has significance. You're making an impact. Right? Maybe you don't serve at a glamorous position in the church. Maybe nobody pats you on the back and be like, man, you do so much for this church. 
but don't think you don't matter. Your life has significance. You're marching across the land for Jesus. So, so maybe you just quietly take food to people when they need it, right? You're making an impact for Jesus. Maybe you just tithe and nobody knows what you do, but you're just quietly serving and going along. You're making an impact for Jesus, see? And here's the thing that you need to understand, and I need our context to get this across, okay? The way we conquer on this earth is not by violently destroying the enemy, right? It's not by voting them all out. It's not by taking up arms. It's not by defeating cancel culture, although that'd be wonderful. The way we conquer is the exact same way that Jesus did. We stay faithful till the end like Jesus and we die in the faith. That's how we conquer. That's how we conquer. The war against evil has already been won, folks. We're not running around fighting the good guys and the bad guys. It's over. Jesus is one. I know the ending. I know what's going to happen, right? He has already defeated death. And we conquer by keeping our eyes locked in on Jesus no matter what happens on this earth, no matter what we face, and we stay faithful to the end. That is how we conquer. That is how we make an impact, is you die in the faith. The person who dies in the faith, their life speaks volumes more than the person who doesn't. So if you don't know Jesus, let me ask you something. What gives your life purpose? What gives it meaning? Because listen, finding pleasure and purpose and meaning in a world that's passing away makes no sense if you don't know Jesus. It, it makes none. And if you don't know Jesus, this army we're talking about right here, this army will crush you one day and the only meaning your life will have will be an object of God's just wrath as he demonstrates his justice on those who, doesn't know him, who don't know him. So what we see in this 144,000 is the church on earth, right? Theologians would say this is the church militant as it crosses the country, as it crosses the land, winning souls for Jesus. And then in verse nine, look what happens. The scene, the scene shifts to show us the church conquering in heaven. Verse nine, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So on earth, the 144,000 are sealed. They're on the brink of battle. And in heaven, it's a great multitude from all nations, tribes, peoples, and languages. All right. So think back to chapter five. John heard that Jesus was a lion, but what does he do? He turns and he sees a lamb, right? So here, John hears the number 144,000, but then he turns and he sees a great multitude that can't be numbered. So in other words, what this showing is this, those sealed on the earth have made it to their eternal destination. That Jesus saved them, he sealed them, everything they went through was worth it, and now they're standing before the throne of God, they're worshiping him because he's the one who's guided them to what he's promised. They have palm branches, reminds us of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as they wave, Hosanna, Hosanna, hail to the conquering king, right? But it also reminds us of the Feast of Booths in which Israel celebrated God's provision. 
in which Israel said, hey, you know what? The only reason we're still in existence, that we have food, that we've made it, is because God's done it for us, that God's provided for us. And this is what's happening in heaven. James Hamilton says, they do not make themselves invincible. God seals them. And for this, they praise him, right? Notice verse 10, what are they saying? Crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So they're giving credit where credit is due. The salvation belongs to God. Salvation from beginning to end is the work of the one who saves and sustains us and ultimately will carry us through to the final day. So these people, these saved, these sealed, they're not standing before the throne going, oh man, what a big house I had. Man, it was awesome. Man, I had so much money, I was flush with it. You could see all the things that I did with my money. I mean, my political affiliation was spot on. I made great choices with my life. Like, I never got in trouble. I never did anything wrong. I I was a really good person. Are they doing any of that in verse 10? No, they're saying salvation, all of it, belongs to the Lamb. You're the one that saved me. You're the one that carried me through hard times. And you're the one who made sure that I arrived safely in heaven. And so as they're sitting there pouring out all this praise to Jesus, the angels, the elders, and the creatures around the throne are listening to the human beings and they go, amen. Amen, let it be, Jesus. Like they're worshiping him for the fact that his, uh, they're worshiping Jesus for his plan of salvation. The salvation of human beings has become the reason for their praise to God the Father. That's pretty stinking cool to me. And they say seven things, right? To God, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might belong to God forever and ever. They're praising God for his plan of salvation that he laid forth from the beginning of time to save this multitude. So church, who gets your praise? I mean, do you think you deserve credit for your salvation? Be honest. I mean, there's times I think I do, right? There's days I think I deserve commendation for my exemplary Christian life. But in reality, if not for the grace of God, I wouldn't be numbered in this multitude, and neither would you. Salvation belongs to God. And that's why we push and we say here at this church every day we should rejoice and be thankful for the gospel. That's what we talked about in deacon's meeting this morning is the fact that because of Jesus, Braden shared with us that because of what he's done, we're able to enter in and worship. We take that for granted. It's not because you're good, it's because he was good. And so we rejoice in that because that's what we're gonna be doing in heaven is rejoicing in the fact not that we did good things or that we were awesome, but that Jesus was awesome. And then finally, John has one last exchange with one of the elders to tie this whole thing together, right? Look at verse 13. I love this. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I think it's pretty funny, right? Who are they, John? And John's kind of like, you know, I think I know, but I'm going to see if you know, right? And, And so I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So this elder tells him, man, these are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes in the blood of Jesus Christ, which covered their sins and made them white. So let me just give you a few things. First, the, the great tribulation's right now. It's not a future event. It's happening right now. You're in it. John's already told us that, that, that he's our brother. He's our partner in the tribulation. Uh, dispensationalism teaches that the great tribulation is Daniel's 70th week, the final seven years of human history. But Daniel's 69th week ended when Jesus stood up in the temple and said, hey, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. The 70th week is the whole period of time between the two comings of Christ. So in other words, the 70th week started the minute Jesus broke out of the tomb and, and came back to life, Right? He tells us this in John 5, 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Acts 2, 16 through 17. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Peter goes on to say that that's happening right here, right now. So the age that we're living in is an age of tribulation. And as we will see later, so for those of you who really want really bad gloom and doom, it's not gonna get any better, okay? And there is going to be an intense period of persecution right before the Lord comes back. It's going to ramp up. It's going to get bad, all right? So what John sees is not a description of those saved during a seven-year period. He sees all believers in Jesus. So here's what I wanna challenge you with again. Remember, this was written to the seven churches in Asia Minor for us. We cannot make it mean something to us that it didn't mean to them. So, so they understood what was going on when they read this, right? We act like the book of Revelation would have been foreign to them, but it wasn't. God's word is clear. It's always been clear. He is not the author of confusion. So they would have read this and they would have known exactly what he's talking about. These seven churches weren't thinking Russia, Apache helicopters bombing Israel. They weren't. That They understood exactly what he meant. And I want you to see how encouraging this chapter would have been to these seven churches. Right there, they were facing tribulation. The Roman Empire was persecuting them. He was killing them. They were being thrown to wild animals. It was bad. Some of them were in prison for their faith. And so to hear that Jesus had sealed them, that Jesus had protected them, that Jesus would carry them and bring them to his throne, how encouraging would that be to believers that are in the midst of something like that? It's lost on us because we got it too easy. It's exactly what's going on here. So in other words, they will come out of this and they will make it to heaven's shores. They'll be covered in the blood. They'll be given white robes of righteousness. So, so what I, I need to impress on you is this, is first off, Christians, those who are sealed, are you facing difficulty in your life? And if you are, do you believe that Jesus has not forgotten you? D do you believe and do you know that he has sealed you? That he'll carry you through? That, that he's holding you? Today, would you, you rest in Jesus? Would you trust in Jesus? And listen, maybe some of you just need to grieve for a moment. You know, you know grieving's okay, right? Sometimes it's okay to grieve. I have this quote from John Piper that, that Candace made me. It's hanging in my office, and I love it, and it's a comfort. Listen to what he says. Occasionally, weep deeply 
over the life you hoped it would be. It's okay to weep deeply. Not everything's gone the way you wanted it to, has it? It's okay to look back sometimes and weep over that, right? I had to hear three steps of footprints in my house, right? Not two. It's okay to look at that and weep over that sometimes, right? He says, occasionally weep deeply over the life you hoped would be. Grieve the losses. But then listen to what he says. Then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. It's okay. Grieve that sometimes. But then get up and set your eyes back on Jesus and say, you know what? No matter what happens to me on this earth, he's gonna carry me through. That he has a plan and a purpose for my life. I've been sealed, and because I've been sealed, my life has meaning and purpose. So listen, if you're in Christ, it means you're invincible. It means nothing can snatch you from the Father's hand, that God has sealed you, and that doesn't mean that your life will be pain-free. It means that God will accomplish his will for your life, and you will arrive safely on heaven's shores, and you're going to join the ranks of the redeemed with palm branches, and you're going to worship Jesus for what he did. It means that you and I, if we're believers, we get to say with Paul in Romans 8, 31 through 39, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So listen to this, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're sealed, you get to say that today. So here in a moment, you need to stand and just sing with all you've got. Non-Christian, I speak to you now. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Jesus? Or are you trusting in your own ability to stand before Jesus? Because if you are, it won't be enough. It won't be. Verses 15 and 17 show us the the result of trusting in Jesus, right? There at the very end. He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. They won't thirst, they won't hunger. That in other words, those who trust in Christ will receive everything that God has promised them and more. Chapter seven shows us the guarantee that Christians have because of Jesus and the sealing that comes from faith. So today, if you don't know Jesus, would you trust in him? Don't leave until you grab a friend or me or Joe and just say, I don't know Jesus. Let's get it settled today so that you can be among the ranks of the redeemed one day and stand before the throne. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day and thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you so much that chapter seven of Revelation is in the Bible and it's there to comfort us uh, in our struggles and in our, our suffering, that we know that no matter what we face, if we've been sealed by you, that Father, you will hold us, you will carry us, and that we will arrive safely on heaven's shore. So Father, for my my brothers and sisters in this room that maybe are struggling, going through a difficult time in their life, I I pray that you would uh, allow them to to lean on this promise today, that they would rest on this promise today, that they would know uh, that you have not let them down, that you are good. 
Maybe they need to grieve over some things in their lives today. And as Dr. Piper tells us, then wash their face and get up and worship you and be thankful for the life that they have. And finally, for those in this room that don't know you, that are trusting in something else, I pray today that they would not leave before they put their faith and trust in you today, that you would save them and that you would change their life forever so that they could find themselves among the ranks of the redeemed. We love you, Jesus. It's all about you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you please?